your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. I guess today is Max Borders. Max is editor of the Freeman Magazine and director of content for the Foundation for Economic Education. He's also the author of Super Wealth, Why We Should Stop Worrying About the Gap Between the Rich and the Poor, which is a really enjoyable read for anybody who's interested in the issues covered in this podcast. Max, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Thank you so much for having me. So let's dive right in. Why should we stop worrying about the gap between the rich and the poor? Oh, that's a, I spend a lot of the book answering that question. In fact, each chapter is a different way of slicing it. But I'd say the primary reason we should stop worrying about the gap between rich and poor is that in order for the poor to be better off, there have to be wealthy people. Someone has to create wealth. Once we confront the question of how wealth is created, everything else follows. But I would say that the... Uh, the other ways of slicing it are many, but that's, that is the primary reason. Another way of putting it is you can see the economy as an ecosystem of value. And if that value ecosystem is functionally damaged in any way by attempts to restructure or re-engineer society through redistributive means or other means, that value ecosystem can disappear so the participants in that ecosystem, i.e. you and me and those who are well-off, good stewards of capital, and those who are not so well-off will be all harmed by attempts to, to, to undermine the functional integrity of that ecosystem. Yeah, so let's, we'll break that down as we go through. Right. Um, sometimes you'll hear people try to dismiss the whole inequality argument with this sort of analogy they'll talk about you know the teacher who walks up to his class and says okay guys you took a test and some got a's some got b's some got d's and f's we're gonna have great equality everybody gets a c and of course we're all supposed to recognize that's unjust that's an outrage and yet there, although there's something right i think about that analogy it's not very convincing to people because when they look at the economic sphere they don't see wealth is necessarily earned in the same way that grades are. They don't see what goes into creating the fortune of a CEO or a financier. And I think one of the refreshing things about your book is that you spend a lot of time talking about not raw data numbers, but where prosperity comes from, what a business is, how production takes place. So I wonder if you could kind of take us through that a little bit. Uh, I know it takes probably 100, 200 pages in your book, but what is wealth and where does it come from? You know, it's it's a really rich question, and the answer the answers are themselves rich. Um, in fact, there have been economic theorists who have spent years trying to answer the question of where wealth comes from. But I think it, it boils down to a combination of factors that work uh, together. Um, the first is what one might call the institutional setting. These are the rules of the game. And uh, the, the, the Nobel laureate Doug North, who is an institutional economist, 
of the new, new institutional economic schools said something along these lines. If, there, if your institutions give rise to piracy, uh, if, you're, if you have piratical institutions, your institutions will give rise to more piracy. If your institutions um, tend to um, um, encourage produ productive activity, then you'll get more production. This is uh, because, of course, institutions give rise to certain incentives, and the behavior within those incentive structures is going to make all the difference. So to, to look at an economy as, a, as first and foremost an incentive system is, is important, but it is not the only thing. We have second to talk about what uh, your, your listeners might be familiar with, which is the creative individual, the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur, as Ayn Rand rightly points out, is a, is a kind of hero. Now, this, is, this can be a psychological disposition we have towards entrepreneurs. If we take a little more dispassionate view of entrepreneurs, we have to acknowledge that they are creative individuals. They know how to take resources, people, and ideas and put them together in ways such that good things come about. And they know how to serve other people in exchange for those, uh, what Walter Williams calls certificates of performance, which we call dollars, or if you live in uh, Britain, pound, and so on. But in any case, we understand that in, in a system, we have value, in our proper incentive systems, we have value creators. Those are people who have the freedom and flexibility uh, and the requisite institutions to take resources, people, and ideas, put them together in a way that creates value. Value for whom? Well, those are consumers of goods and services and even experiences. So that's the second part. And I, finally, I would, I would add to that uh, the, the f one of the famous Austrian economist Israel Kurtzner, who's, who's wonderful, uh, uh, points out about entrepreneurs that they have a certain kind of alertness, and that alertness is opportunities for arbitrage. You 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 find an opportunity to sell someone something better, faster, and and more cheaply, then you're going to take it, and by virtue of that, you'll benefit. And the entrepreneur has a special alertness for doing that. So if you if you take the from the perspective of the entrepreneur that dimension, you take the institutional dimension, which gives rise to the incentives. How do these entrepreneurs behave given the incentive structures around them? Um, and and then you add the element of um, what we might call the informal institutions. How we how we treat our entrepreneurs in society, the the general ethos around entrepreneurship. Uh, those forces are, account for a good amount of what we would call growth or human flourishing in this world. Now, that's not to say that all of your human flourishing and happiness has to do with people selling us stuff, whether it be a good or a service or an experience. But certainly, that um, it, it is a, in great measure what it means to flourish and have uh, you know, a greater standard of li living and well-being. Um, so then how would you put the answer to this question, which is how do people get rich in this country? You know, the, the short answer is you serve others. You create value that's greater than what they're prepared to let go of. 
it's real simple. Um, if uh, there's a, a cute little kid running in a lemonade stand out here, and it's I live in Austin, Texas, which is a hot place even today, and I see that kid, and, and they have engaged in productive activity. They have also engaged in the kind of arbitrage opportunity that means that um, they've brought something that I might like a little bit closer to me. Now, of course, that means I've got 50 cents in my hand. I like that. I want that, or I desire that lemonade more than I do the 50 cents in my hand. That is, if we have exchange, it is very hard to question that proposition. Now, some people might go to philosophical gymnastics about, uh, you know, drug addicts and so on. But on a whole, you know, barring those debates, whenever people exchange, both parties are made better off. This is, this is absolutely clear. And on aggregate, this gives rise to, um, to a great measure of wealth. Just in exchange alone, we can make the economy grow. Just in exchange alone. Now, that, that exchange um, can happen only to a certain degree, though, without production. So the productive capability of the entrepreneur in combination with other people who might help him or her in that process and through those sorts of exchanges and buying the, the sort of requisite capital goods that are going to make economies of scale possible, producing things um, on mass at much lower costs, these processes, as much as, as unsexy as they can sound to some people, are really what gives us the kind of standard of living we have. Um, and that goes right down to, uh, that can be simplified right down to the little girl with the uh, lemonade stand across the street here in Austin. Now, in your book, though, you also talk about, so in effect, you're just talking about the makers, the people who are finding new and better ways to improve human life and prospering as a result. But in your book, you also talk about um, what you call takers, that is, people who gain at others' expense. So could you talk a little bit about what it means to be a taker as opposed to a maker, and then what kind of institutional policies make that possible or promote it? Sure, and it's this is um, this is something that that bothers me uh, down to my very core. I have to say, and <clears throat> even though we have probably in human history one of the best examples of an institutional setting that would give rise to productive activity, over time our social operating systems, if you want to call it that, are getting buggy, and that is to say that. Even the Constitution, as brilliantly as it was conceived, <clears throat> is um, to the extent that it has not been followed, is uh, becoming a buggy social operating system. Now, that's the institutional framework, and I understand a listener might argue with that on its face. But let me go, let me let me put it in different terms. Um, that the principles enshrined in the Constitution are only only as good as those who believe in them. And the extent to which the stewards of our republic walk away from it is the extent to which uh, we're going to see rise to these kinds of institutional problems. Now, I'm not saying that the U.S. Constitution is ideal. I'm not sure that any sort of charter or constitution would be ideal. Uh, and I don't think that's what we want to talk about today. The, the nexus between um, 
between politicians and what we call take well politicians are takers but the the take the private sector takers so-called private sector takers is one is an unholy alliance and that unholy alliance is about taking value that is created in society by others true entrepreneurs the makers and transferring it into your coffers or into your pockets and that's easily done through all sorts of social policies whether that be subsidies for big agribusiness or creating a, a certain kind of targeted tax or targeted tax cut. Um, it could be direct transfers. There are all kinds of ways for the parasite economy to grow. And once we recognize that it's the institutional matrix that gives rise to this, we don't want to necessarily call the people who are engaged in it devils. It's, it's, it's tempting to do so, and, and already calling someone a taker or a parasite has a, has a kind of, uh, um, it's, it's, it's pronouncing sort of moral judgment on people. But I don't want to go the whole way. I want to look at the institutional matrix, too, as I pointed out earlier. And here's why, Don, because, because when you are in a certain kind of institutional setting, uh, the, the incentives are very great, and that doesn't mean you, you, that you know someone is necessarily uh, gets away unscathed for engaging in this kind of activity. But let's let's suppose with our listeners that uh, you uh, are the CEO of the Acme Flange Company, and this is one of my uh, a, a favorite example of mine that was given by a guy named Jonathan Rausch in the book Government's End. Um, you, you're the CEO of Acme Flange Company, and your competitor is looking like they're going to try to get a bill, bill passed that would make your flanges more expensive. And some substitutable product, suppose, that I have at, uh, at competitor flange company, um, or, or it's not a flange, maybe it's a, it's a, it's a frange. And my frange against your flange in a, in a marketplace where we can compete with, uh, equally before the law, we, we might uh, find that we are in a highly competitive environment, prices are low, and we continue to innovate to out-compete you know, to, to out each other in the marketplace. But instead, I have decided to take a different tack. I've decided to call a lobbyist. And you, as the CEO of the Acme Flange Company, see that this is in the works, that I am colluding now with politicians in order to better my situation. Now, it's not to say you're a bad person if you counter-lobby. If you either try to make the law benefit your favor so that you don't go out of business, I mean, ideally you would want to fight the law on it, you know, just straight out fight the law. But... There are a lot of situations in which when, we, when um, market actors start to play the political game, there's tremendous benefits to doing so. It causes an arms race in an industry where all the other actors are forced to participate lest they be left out. And when you are running a company, you have a, a responsibility to your shareholders and, your, and to some extent your, yourself and your employees as well, which is, which is also morally incumbent upon you. So, you know, the question becomes, do these, does this arms race of lobbying, when one starts it and the others are forced to participate, does it mean they're all evil for doing so? I don't know. Um, I suppose that when the characters in Atlas Shrugged did shrug, 
they got to a point where they decided there's no more of this. We're not going to play this game anymore. And they were sorts of ideals. And to look at the world we're dealing with now, so much of our economy is taken up as, as, the, make, as the taker economy of people who are engaged in this process. But I'm not sure all of them started out that way. And this sort of arms race is highly destructive because it's essentially an auction for political power. And that auction continues. Uh, once it's been played, it pulls all the other actors into it. So it's, I, I would say there's so much that can be said about this issue of rent-seeking behavior. But I would say that um, the, the biggest evil is the system itself. And secondarily, the participants, participants in that system are also um, are also morally culpable, but um, it's to my mind the institutions lead the way, and we've got to get the rules right first because eventually, under corrupt regimes, uh, people are corruptible as well. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because what often happens, is, and you you saw this for instance with Microsoft that before before they were attacked with anti-just uh, antitrust lawsuits, they spent virtually nothing on lobbying. They didn't want anything from Washington. And then after the antitrust suit, they started spending a lot. And what you, you, you got at the beginning is basically paying money to try to keep themselves safe from interference. But over time, the line between am I protecting myself from interference versus am I trying to take advantage of other companies and holding hold them down becomes blurry. And then in the case of Microsoft, as I recall, I mean, they even started uh, pushing for antitrust suits against some of their competitors, although I, I don't remember 100% if it, that's right of Microsoft. But the general point is that it is a corrupting process. Now, there's a flip side, too, which is not only does the government make it possible for people to take, but it also holds down the makers, particularly poor people. And you give a bunch of examples in your book of laws that prevent people who want to make a better life for themselves by producing, by creating value, uh, they're interfered with. And so could you talk about just some of the ways in which the government stops those people from, in effect, rising by their own bootstraps? Sure, sure. Um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll tell a little story from a couple of stories from the book that I think are interesting in terms of their parallels. Um, it's become something of a of a dead horse in terms of of the narrative uh, these days because people are enamored of food trucks. But so what? It's a good example. It is the it's one of the finest examples of micro entrepreneurship. Particularly, we saw the rise of food trucks in two thousand eight when um, you know everything is going belly up. And so I think it's a great example, and, and um, I ended up interviewing a micro-entrepreneur here in town um, uh, named Mike, and Mike started off in a food truck selling tacos, and he happened to be a real innovator. He was a, a, a trained chef out of D.C., moves to Texas, and, and the guy, I don't know what kind of crazy person would do this, but he decides to start a taco truck in Texas. I mean, you know, you can't throw a stick in this town without hitting somebody that sells tacos. But nevertheless, he did. And when people came up and ate his tacos out of his out of his uh, food trailer, they said, "Man, these are damn good." So he called his taco truck Torchy's Damn Good Tacos. Torchy's Tacos—that's the name of the place. And damn good is right there in between. Excuse my mouth for your listeners, but hey, that's that's uh, the guy's uh, logo, right? So. 
So this guy starts out in 2006, and people love his tacos. Now let's go to another food city. I'm, you might have noticed the accent by now. I'm originally from North Carolina. And I happened at one point to live in the, in the state capital, which is Raleigh. Now Raleigh does not allow food trucks. And the problem with that is uh, you didn't get the mics in Raleigh. The mic I'm talking about is from Austin. Now if, if you go over to Raleigh, you won't find any, anybody like Mike. And indeed, Raleigh, the city of, of Raleigh, through machinations of the town fathers, actually subsidized a person to start a, a what, what would you call it, a white tablecloth restaurant called The Mint. The, the members of the General Assembly wanted the Yankees that came down to be able to eat on white tablecloth and, and, and clink glasses in high, as if they were, you know, uh, as, as a high-class affair, they didn't want to be embarrassed as a, as a kind of podunk town as the, as the state capital. So they got the town to invest a million dollars in this restaurant. Now, um, fast forward to 2011, and Torchy's Tacos at that point was up to 10 bricks-and-mortar stores in, here, in, primarily in Austin, but also a couple of stores in Dallas. Ten bricks-and-mortar stores. So the guy goes from 2006 to 2011 in, in, a, in five years from a food truck to 10 stores. Micro-entrepreneurship giving rise to tremendous flourishing of value in Torchy's Damn Good Tacos. Now, what do you think happened to the Mint as of 2011? Got to be hundreds of stores with thousands of happy customers. <laughs> I'm afraid not. The, pe the place went bankrupt because the Yankees wanted to go to Clyde Cooper's barbecue down the street. And nobody, nobody had the opportunity to start a micro-business in Raleigh because they wouldn't, uh, because of the regulatory climate is far too strict. So this is an example, and there are thousands. There's occupational licensing. There's taxi cartelization that is being currently being fought by the likes of Lyft and Uber. There are all sorts of impediments to micro-entrepreneurship where people are trying to make their lives better and the government stands in the way. These stories have to be told, and if, if we're not advocates for micro-entrepreneurs, the, you know, these are the, it's not just about the, you know, the, the entrepreneurs who create the wonderful things that, gadgets and gadgets we hold in our hands, you know, with, uh, with tremendous economies of scale. It's also the people who create little value in our lives and make ends meet. These people are trying to get ahead and, uh, and they are, we have to be advocates for them just as well. Yeah, so just to put the pieces together so far, I mean, what we basically see is that, the, that people get ahead by doing something productive, creating things that make human life better. And if you liberate people to do that and then stop people from gaining unearned benefits through various government uh, laws and, and rules that allow taking that everybody can get better off at the same time, not necessarily to the same degree, but that we can all make our lives better and nobody's forced to sacrifice for anybody else. And so then that raises the question of wealth redistribution. And the question is, well, if that's the case, is it right that we take from people who have legitimately earned and created a fortune, let's say, in order to give it to others. What's your view on that? 
Well, I, I think it's wrong. Um, and I, and I, I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to overstate that. Let me put it in slightly different terms. Every, your listeners may be familiar with a philosopher named John Rawls. And John Rawls had this to say, and John, John Rawls is, is, uh, he, he's pretty universally maligned on the, the libertarian objectivist right. And I, and I would say, you know, to some degree, de- deservedly show, but he, de- deservedly so. But I think he did have an, a, something of an elegant theory, and I've always respected it. And what Rawls said is, is the following. It's like, look, we don't know how virtues and, talents are, virtues and talents are going to be distributed among people. If we could take a step back in a pre-birth state, and say, I could be just as easily born into a situation where I'm retarded, born in Calcutta, or, or a bright, super talented, high IQ, uh, productive, studious young person born to the sons and daughters of magnates. These are all, this is sort of like loading the dice. It's what we might call the natural lottery. And I'm sympathetic to the idea that people are born into the world with different opportunities by virtue of their, their parents and their family, as well as different aptitudes, skills, talents, and so on. The question is, you know, what kind of system uh, makes people act with the best of their ability, moving as, in as much as they can towards excellence? And here's something that may surprise your listeners. I think a system of free market, free markets and open exchange and entrepreneurship that is that is protected by minimal government is the system that satisfies what Rawls would call uh, his difference principle, and that difference principle go, or goes something like this: inequality is to be tolerated to the degree that it benefits everyone, especially the least advantaged. Now, objectivists and libertarians are generally hostile to that as a criterion. And, and to some degree I am too, but let's just take Rawls on his face. Let's just say, hey, you know, let's just say you want, if you want to pick a system that satisfies that, I would say to Rawls, if he were still living, you can't do any better than a system of free markets and free charity because what benefits the least advantaged most is a system in which the government by virtue of redistribution and policies of transfer make them dependent and make and and tend and pay essentially pays them to be poor it's not just that they um, remain poor and collect a check in order to do so but they have their own individual flourishing dampened or tamped down by the state they don't the best in them the aristotelian eudaimonic you know Becoming someone and doing something and trying to be your best gets tamped down. So I'm not here to argue that um, that uh, that Rawls is necessarily right with making the difference principle a criterion. But what I am saying is, even if he were, even if we stipulated that it is right in some grand moral sense, the capitalism is the only and best way to satisfy those criteria. His criteria. Um, so I wonder what folks would have to say about that, at least on the left. And I'm sure what they would say is that uh, they 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 consider the wealthy to be, uh, you know, human ATMs, and that 
the weak and vulnerable are always, always and everywhere victims. And I just don't believe that. I think they're victimized by the state. They're made dependent by the state. And largesse uh, tends to perpetuate cycles of poverty. I thought we had resolved this in 19, was it 94, with the Welfare Reform Act, that this was sort of a national consensus, but apparently not. We're back to where we were prior to those years. Yeah, we talked about uh, John Rawls on a recent podcast with Gregory Salmieri, so I think listeners can hear my assessment of him, or at least a little bit of it in that one. But I want to turn to um, what I personally found the most interesting chapter in your book, uh, not that I don't love the stuff about entrepreneurs and businessmen, but you have a chapter called Statistics and Sabotage. And now the idea that a chapter in statistics could be one of the most interesting in a book is, I think, something that might surprise people. But I think one of the... Especially me. <laughs> but one of the points you make is, and I think this is really important, is that we have kind of a fetish for statistics. It makes us feel like we can be scientific rather than have to argue about values, which is uh, seems to many people to be a subjective endeavor. Um, what are the, uh, uh, talk about some of the challenges with statistics and they and particularly the way that they come up in issues such as have the middle class stagnated or, uh, does inequality undermine economic mobility, which we allegedly prove by showing that high inequality countries have more mobility than the U S. Right. I mean, there's all kinds of ways um, the wielders of statistics use them as a, a sort of blunt instrument against uh, any other considerations. And it, it, it's interesting that, that we've come to this age of sort of macroeconomics and, and statistics as sort of the answer to all social problems. And this, is, this has become a kind of status quo for one reason because the average person, including me, I have to say, I, I had to get... Um, a much uh, smarter guy than me, Don Boudreau, an economist at, at George Mason University, hold my hand through this chapter. And I appeal to his work to a great degree, and I, I readily admit that. But one of the things that Don's found in his research is that they're just all, first of all, the, the first level of this is that there's all kinds of tricks you can use to make things look worse than they are. So, for example, uh, the idea that there's been a great wage stagnation since the 1970s and that everybody, uh, since the, I think, yeah, I think it's since 1980 um, is, is usually the, the, the Robert Reich uh, starting point for this, this great wage stagnation that we've, we've supposedly all experienced. And it's just not true. And, and, and so one of the ways they try to, to, to make, make it look like there's this great wage stagnation is to talk only about wages, average wages and salaries. Well, the, 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 you know, that's just a, slide of hand, a statistical sleight of hand. When you take total compensation, the fact that there are pre-tax benefits that go, uh, pre-tax benefits to go to health care, that go to your 401k, keep in mind that it was only right about then that the 401k actually even existed. And now it's this great vehicle, imperfect as it is, it's become this great democratization of capital. You don't have to be a stockbroker or a banker or a mutual, mutual fund advisor in order to have a 401k. Everybody's able to do that now through their work, and there's tax benefits to doing so. Again, it's not perfect, but it is certainly better than the, the pre-401k status quo. And it was discovered by a guy in the tax code, and it ended up being exploited and became a financial product. We could all participate in this, and um, 
uh, I have something similar in my nonprofit organization, but the, but the idea is <laughs> there's a bunch of if you don't count that tremendous growth uh, a wealth creation that's a result of people who are you know normal people like you and me being able to have a 401k there's something statistically fishy about that second the the tremendous inflation in healthcare uh costs uh also has to do with the tremendous uh um Inflation in health insurance costs by virtue of the fact that we most of us get our health insurance through our employers, and this is a weird, also weird artifact of the tax code that was started in around World War II due to wage and price controls. So, if you take out what people are getting for healthcare benefits, oh, and by the way, the poor who are on public assistance are also getting forms of uh, of value that are are also not in the form of wages and salaries. You take all of these things and count them up. It's there's been a lot of growth. It's you know things have gotten a lot better, and indeed, um, the even though the average um, percentage of of the pie it may not have changed over time, just in wages, um, it, it's sort of like if you took a, a a pizza and made the the actual pizza bigger. If you got the same slice as you did 30 years ago of a bigger pizza, you've got more out in an absolute sense. So you got to be, you know, you got to look to people like Don who can sort of sort all these things. Otherwise, it's it's really easy to be suckered into this. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, that's what I would highlight here is that what the number one thing you can't do is just take any number that you hear, even from a Nobel Prize winning economist about this is happening with incomes, this is happening with inequality, this is happening with mobility, and take them at face value because it is very, very easy to invoke the title of a famous book to lie with statistics. Uh, And so I think that is a really key takeaway for people. Uh, Our time is running short, and I want to be respectful of your time, but I do uh, wonder if you can talk a little bit about a book that you cover in your book quite extensively and that I think has gotten a lot of play, and that's The Spirit Level. And (laughs) for people who don't know, I mean, this was a book that basically says inequality is responsible for every evil thing in society, including obesity and mental health problems. And uh, maybe you didn't read the book, but most people have seen Richard Wilkinson, one of the author's TED Talk, where he makes this point. And what he does is... shows a bunch of correlations between high inequality countries and really bad outcomes and low inequality countries and really good in, uh, outcomes. Uh, can you say just a few words about what's wrong with that approach and w- with that whole style of argument? Yeah, I mean, it really is a steaming pile of book with flies um, around it. But um, <clears throat> excuse me for a, a, a uh, it's not ad hominem. I guess it, I guess it's a form of ad hominem. But in any case, here's why it's a ba- it's such a bad book. The first rule you always have to 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 employ is is uh, when doing anything that you call research is to disentangle correlation with causation. So what they do is to try to weave together this really tenuous causal story by uh, by basically gathering data, cherry-picked data no less, from countries that have high inequality. Now, 
So, um, and then they go along a number of dimensions and say, look, lo and behold, uh, whatever your dimension you like, in the countries there, where there's higher inequality, you have a situation where uh, there's, there's some bad along some dimension. Now, the first thing they do, of course, is they take, about, take out the two richest places in the world, to, which also have very high inequality, Singapore and Hong Kong. They take them out of their calculations because their entire argument would be completely undermined if they did. You can't take the richest places in the world, inequality notwithstanding, and do that. Second, inequality is not in and of itself um, uh, a bad thing. I mean, if we're all starting, let's just suppose that that in 20 years we're all making, uh, the, the, the sort of the bottom quintile is making $100,000 a year, and then everybody at the top quintile is like, you know, three times the net worth of Bill Gates. Well, if we're all, you know, enjoying standards of living of people making $100,000 a year, who cares how much... The, the top quintile is making. It's just it's just completely arbitrary. The idea of some kind of abstract distance between the rich and the poor in and of itself limbs some sort of picture of human well-being. It just doesn't. It's it's ridiculous. And so going back to Singapore and Hong Kong, we package them back in. Of course, it's gonna it's gonna blow everything wide apart. But then once you take the um, the sort of the specific dimensions they look at, for example, um, let's say uh, longevity. Uh, longevity is one of those where uh, look, look at all these equal countries, people tend to live longer. Well, if you look at the health statistics from the United States, is it so happens? Yeah, we're obese people, but that's not because of inequality. We're obese people for all kinds of sociological factors. We subsidize sugar. We, uh, people love to eat their donuts. Americans drink lots of sodas. I mean, there, there's just tons of different reasons why this is. And when you actually look at health data from the United States, notwithstanding our insane healthcare system, um, we actually do pretty well in the world. We would be number if you factor out uh, car accidents and murder, which have nothing to do with with uh, health outcomes. These are these are sort of these are different factors. They don't have to do with with healthcare per se. Have to do with you know unsafe roads and driving longer distances and so on. Uh, and and the, you know the the drug war and 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 other kinds of factors. If you parse these individual um, dimensions, you can figure out why precisely uh, uh, inequality has nothing to do with the bads of these along these dimensions. So it really is the book, the spirit level, really is a um, um, a gross manipulation of statistics, and it can scarcely be called. Uh, good research. Now, I was planning on ending by asking you about the intellectual leaders behind the economic inequality campaign, um, but I think instead uh, readers can see your book. You have some really interesting things to say on that. I, I want to go back to the positive um, because your book is really filled with an enthusiasm for creativity, entrepreneurship, innovation, and for everything it's achieved. And I wonder if you can kind of give us the big picture of how much it has achieved and what it might achieve in the future if we leave people free to engage in those activities. And in particular, I really liked the way that you opened that discussion with Mama Borders and the changes she saw during the course of her life. So why don't we end with that? Where have we come? How far have we come? And where do you think we're going if we're left free? 
Oh, I tell you what, you know, she is a wonderful representative of this story. Um, not only because she she's my great grandmother, which is is sort of the punchline here, but um, but she represents this. I would say she she lived to be a hundred four years old. So first, she represents this great swath of time that is America from a time an agrarian point in our history where I think maybe 80% of the economy were, was, was agriculture to a time where it's less than 2%. And then the, in that 104 years, she saw a, a, just a tremendous development of human flourishing. She witnessed it in her lifetime. By the time I came along in 1973, um, I was you know, standing at her hip eating brown sugar toast with appliances and labor-saving devices all around me that she had only she had only had for a quarter of her life. I guess she'd have been she would have been about 75 around that time when I came in, you know, toddling around with her. And man, you know, she just she just represents so much uh, of of um of this flourishing we as a human species witnessed because she lived long enough to see it. And that's why I use her as an example. She and her husband were, were poor tenant farmers. And um, uh, they, had to, they had to witness stuff like an, a neighbor come over early on in their marriage, a black neighbor. And, and it's hard for people to understand this, but poor white tenant farmers and, and blacks were neighbors that helped each other out and, you know, the South has this legacy of sl- slavery and pr- post-Reconstruction, but actually there, a lot of people depended on each other and that crossed racial lines. So a black neighbor came over to my great-grandmother in rural Cleveland County, and um, and this was a time when, you know, inoculation for rabies was not around, and the, and the man's son was rabid. The only thing you could do with a rabid person in that time was was practice uh, uh, was what they did. I mean, this is the the sort of ethos of the time and place. I don't I don't know I don't want to um, get into any deep philosophical arguments about it. But what they had to do was that they took the boy and put him between two corn shuck tick mattress, mattresses and suffocated him. And this was just a reality of a time when we didn't have modern medicine. And she lived through that through the Great Depression. She ran out and saw the Model T Ford in the in the teens. She she lived through the Great Depression. She saw her son go off to war. She saw the post-war boom. I mean, by the time she died, she was being you know she was being carried in um, you know a comfortable air-conditioned car uh, to to Walmart to have her hair and to have her hair done uh, and enjoy products and services the likes of which she could never have imagined when she was a teenager. And it's just a fantastic um, testament to entrepreneurship in this country. And she participated in the, in the actual construction of wealth in this country, uh, even doing simple things like just working from dawn to dusk to, um, to milk cows, to get cows, to, to cows milk to market and so on. She, uh, she just, for me, a symbol of, of uh, free enterprise in this country in a lot of ways. My guest today has been Max Borders. Max, thanks again for being part of the Debt Dialogues. Thanks, Don. Here's what I would take away from the interview. 
one of the worst mistakes that I think takes place all the time in debates over the welfare state, debates over inequality, is that we just jump right in and ask about things like a fair distribution of wealth or what's happening to the poor, what should happen to the poor, are the rich making too much money? And I think you need a much deeper perspective about where wealth comes from. How is it created? And only then can you start thinking about what kind of political and economic conditions and policies you should have. And I think Max does a good job in his book of really looking at the productive role of all sorts of participants in the economy. Who are the people who are making all of the amazing things that constitute the modern world? And when you understand that, it becomes far less plausible that these people have done something bad, which they need to atone for by having what they've achieved taken and given to others. Of course, I'm not referring here to the takers, but to the makers. And by the same token, you have to look more deeply at why people are poor. One of the great sins of the sort of Mitt Romney 47% remarks is to lump everybody in a given economic level of income into the same category. But the fact is that there are many people who are poor, not everybody, but many, who are poor today because they've been prevented from making. And Max gave some good examples, and in his book gives a lot more examples of the way in which the government stops makers at the lowest level from really lifting themselves up. And that is a real injustice and something that we should take seriously. So I think the bottom line in all this is that to think about what kind of social system we should live in, you really need to look at individuals. You need to look at what kinds of choices and actions they are taking, what kinds of choices and actions they're no longer free to take. And only then can you reach an assessment, a moral assessment of whether or not our economic system today is just or unjust and where should we should go in the future. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy it, please take a minute to review us on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft. And let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.